0: Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Contents of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine and worldwide on the Talkshoe Radio Network. The show is over. You can hear it. It's your leisure. I got some people that listen to it uh, at nine o'clock every Sunday morning, along with their with their breakfast out in the out in the woods of Maine. I got people who record it. One guy records it, and uh, he's from Maine, lives in Florida, and he records it on, onto his iPhone, uses his iPhone to plug it into his car radio and listens to it on the way home from work Friday evening. He works away from his home down in Florida, and uh, we'll show him every weekend. So they get fan mail from all over the place. It's uh, I'm, I'm easy to find. Northern Mainland man. Look it up and Google. It you'll find me and lots of other things. But uh, it's amazing the coverage that this that this program gets and talks show gets. Constitutional Radio Network. Okay, I got some confirmations in. We're going to be have two more apple seeds this year at least in Maine. We've got uh, North Berwick is southwest of Portland, right on the North Berwick is on the New Hampshire line. The west boundary of the town is the New Hampshire state line. It's September 9th and 10th. That's the weekend after Labor Day. We have one down there the weekend after Labor Day every year. They have to have a a club host member. So one member of the club is going to be there. for the event just just to be present. Make sure we don't do anything foolish, I guess. I don't know, but anyway, that's their policy. And uh we get a lot of novices down there. We get people coming up from Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and southern New Hampshire come over. You know, you can walk across the line and some walking distance to the range. So it's uh, New Hampshire is a lot like Maine, didn't more like Maine all the time. And uh, New Hampshire just passed constitutional carry this year, which means that if you want to carry a handgun in, the, in New Hampshire, that you don't have to apply for a permit anymore. You just, you want to carry? You carry. If you don't, you don't. It's your choice. It's constitutional. That's why they call it constitutional carry. And some people are, especially people from away, come into Maine, New Hampshire, See a guy going down the street or see a guy sitting in a restaurant with a handgun on his hip that's okay now there are certain national chain department stores that don't want you to carry in their store and they'll put up a sign no handguns on the premises no firearms on the premises that's fine don't shop there they'll get the idea i i never went to kmart once after Rosie O'Donnell became their spokesman or spokesperson. And that's it. They made their choice. I never walked in the Kmart again after that day. The blue light special has been extinguished in Bangor. They closed down a Kmart store because there's an awful lot of people in Maine that just couldn't, wouldn't go in there anymore. You know, corporate decisions have consequences, good and bad. So North Berwick, September 9th and 10th. Then we have a shoot in Monmouth. It's our busiest club. They, they like Appleseed. We like them. They have a covered firing line. It's concrete, so you want to bring a shooting pad or an old rug or something to lay down on because it's, it's bare concrete, but it's covered. You can shoot in the rain, and you got to go out to your target and back, but you don't have to be in the rain all day. And they have a hundred-yard range that's also uh, covered. They only have about six or eight firing points on that range. They use it for sighting in and whatnot. But uh, we most primary or, or initial instruction at Appleseed is done with a with a 22-caliber semi-automatic rifle, such as the 1022 or one of the Mossbergs, and uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a Smith and Wesson 1022 that we have suspended the use of that firearm at our ranges because the Smith and Wesson that looks—it's like a 22 rimfire—but it looks like an, like an M16 or an AR-15. They have a nasty habit of going full auto, and we don't want that. It's illegal if you own it and it goes full auto, you need to take it back and get it repaired because you never know what's going to go full auto. uh, There's a flaw in the tolerances there that allows the the sear to disengage and stay disengaged. And it just dumps whatever you got. You got a 30-round mag in there; it dumps 30 rounds. Take your hand right off the trigger and down the range they go. Not good. So... They'll figure it out. There will be a recall, and uh, those people who own them will will, uh, be able to use them again. But for the time being, that particular firearm is is banned at Appleseed events. They'll figure it out. And then uh, that Monmouth is October 7th and 8th, first weekend in October. And then on September 13th, uh, I'm going to go down to Massachusetts for the day and visit with uh, one of my fellow state coordinators in Appleseed. His uh, his handle on the forum is didactic. And uh don't know why people pick some of their handles. My handle on the forum is the old guide because I'm old and I was a guide. Don't do that anymore, but... I just kind of held off at the handle can't do everything so we uh, we're going to go down and walk Battle Road we're going to meet in, in Major Buttress garden the old Buttress house from 1775 is still there and his garden is still there and the rock wall that he built around the garden it's the flower garden is still there And you look down across the field from his garden at the North Bridge. It's about 250 yards from the garden to the North Bridge. It's an open field today. It was an open field back then. And the road curves down around the edge of the field. goes to the North Bridge. And the militias near uh, Concord uh, had all been notified. And they were watching from all around. So Paul Revere and William Dawes were the two primary alarm riders. And they spelled the word A-L-A-R-U-M, alarm. And that's how they spelled it. That's how they pronounced it, alarm. And they would ride into a village and they would notify one or three people. Or maybe all three, but they'd notify the storekeeper because he knew everybody in town. He knew the good guys, the bad guys, the unreliable people, and the militia members. And he would notify the preacher. The preacher usually knew everybody in town, whether they were in his congregation or not. He knew knew who the people he could rely on in an emergency. And he would notify the doctor. The doctor knew everybody in town. Most towns didn't have more than one doctor. So they notified the doctor if he was a patriot, if he was a colonialist, if he was an American. And if he was a Tory, they wouldn't tell him. He just didn't stop at his house. The doctor in this town is a Tory. He's loyal to the king. And he does not want America to be free. Okay, well, they'd bypass him. Go on to the next village. But within that village... Other people would go out. As soon as they were notified, they'd notify two people. Then they'd they'd go out, two or three or four or five people. And it would just go. And from midnight on April 18th to sunset on April 19th, there were 14,000 men-at-arms marching toward Concord and to the the road back to Boston. 14,000 turned out. No cell phones, no radios, no text messages. Fourteen thousand people, and as Apple sees at the benediction after the second day, say, could you raise fourteen thousand people if the UN with blue blue helmets were coming into towns and seizing all the private firearms? Could you raise fourteen thousand people? No. Could you raise fourteen hundred? Could you raise 1,400 people to resist the seizure of private firearms in our country and the abolition of our constitution? They couldn't raise 1,400. How about 140? Could you raise 140 men to stand with you? John Parker was standing on Lexington Green with his 37 men who showed up because they had they had an alarm at three o'clock in the morning when Paul Revere came through and they all turned out, nobody was coming. I mean, they sent a rider back out toward Boston on both roads. There's two different roads that come together in Lexington from Boston, one from Cambridge and the one from uh, the Southern part of town. And they, they didn't see anybody coming. So they came back and says, Oh, maybe it's another false alarm because, they had a number of false alarms. So, John Parker sent his friend home, told him to stand by. And when the alarm did come, they were just outside of town. So then he called, they rang the church bell and they fired a couple of muskets and people came running. But he only had 37 men on the green when the red coats showed up. And two men from Woburn were running from Framingham back to Woburn on foot. I mean, they were running at sunrise to get back to Woburn, to their militia. And they ran out to the green. John Parker said to these two men, will you stand with us? They looked at each other and said, we will. They made a decision on the spot. It wasn't their town. It wasn't their village. They were Americans. They stood on Lexington Green against the most powerful army in the world. One of them was killed on the spot. The other one ran off the off the green and ran continued running back up to Woburn to alarm the town told them what had happened on Lexington Green. Eight men were killed on Lexington Green, seven from Lexington and one from Woburn. Jonas harrington uh, was shot. he crawled off the green to his doorstep. The Harrington house was still there, right adjacent to Lexington and he uh, collapsed and died on the doorstep in front of his wife and children. Jonas Parker, John Parker's older brother, Jonas Parker took his hat off with his spare flints and his musket balls in his hat and he said, I shall not be moved from this spot. And he was killed right there. He made his stand, he made his decision. To fight for liberty, and to walk, to stand where they stood, and walk Battle Road, a still called Battle Road today. It's a, it's a national monument today. And there are certain places in our nation where there should be national monuments. You know, Liberty Hall in 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 Philadelphia, and the old North Church in Boston. The Statue of Liberty should be national monuments. They're worthy of that. Roxanne Quimby's cut over Woodlot, east of Baxter Park, should not be a national monument. It's a scam. It's a fraud. It's an insult to the people of the state of Maine and detrimental to our economy. The only way to get there is across private roads. No public road going in there. And between Roxanne's property and Baxter Park, there's a big chunk of private land. Now, they said they wanted to have a 150,000 acre national monument. And they didn't have 150,000 acres. They said, well, it's, it's 87,000 acres. They didn't have 87,000 acres. What they had was Roxanne's 57,000 acres and and uh, and that's it. So she gave her 57,000 acres with the hope that the federal government would drive the owners of the other 30,000 acres away and seize their property or maybe pay them 10 cents on the dollar or something because they can't get there anymore. So they're, they're squeezing those people out then there's the 57 landowners within the 57,000 acres who had camps there. I shouldn't say landowners because they didn't own the land. They had leased land. And they leased the land and they had built camps. And, they had, and one, one lady is 92 years old and her camp had been in the, in the family for four generations. And they had the you know, along, on the door jamb between the the, uh, the living room and the back bedroom, there they had marked Billy and his height at various ages 3, 4, 5, 15, 16, 18. That's how tall Billy was each year. And generations of people had seen in that camp, and they had ledgers and log books and notes of the time that Henry shot the 10-point buck and all this stuff, you know. And the family walked off with some mementos, and they took some of those boards off the door jams, but they said, you've got one year to get out of here, and you're done. The Your lease is not being renewed. And on a snowy night, they went in, and they burned the camps. Didn't burn them all the same night, but they... Good snowy night when your visibility was poor and you wouldn't be able to see the smoke from Patton and they burned them. Then they went in, raked up the, the metal that was left, picked up the nails with magnets, put them in pails, and, and uh, let it go back. No human use is their goal. No human use. They say it throughout their literature. If you read their stuff, It kind of gives you a headache to read it because they hate us. The hate in those people's hearts is palpable. They just hate us. We didn't ever ever do anything to them, but they don't just hate us. It's not personal.
1: They hate you and they hate me,
0: but they hate people. They hate freedom. They hate liberty. And it's a fearsome thing to think that they might win well, they've, they've had a victory. Barack Hussein Obama declared it to be a national monument. That was a big mistake. And The best thing to do when it, the mistake is made is simply to erase it. Erase it and correct it. It should not be a national monument. Now, the deed says it belongs to the federal government, that 57,000 acres. They're going to deed it right away in there that they, uh, the guys, the six Marines that owned the camps at Bowling Falls, they got squeezed out. Six retired Marines just wanted to run a sporting camp up in Northern Maine, met those guys. Stayed in their camp. I, we ran the sled dog race up through there. Started in, uh, in uh, Island Falls. And we went under the interstate and across across fire, almost over Lung Camps, then north, up to East Branch, up the old Tote Road, East Branch Tote Road, it was open as a trail, it was open as a snowmobile trail back then, and uh, before they choked it off. Anyway, this, the racers went in, and spent the night, at bowling camps, and I was, I was race organizer, and, uh, I stayed there. I was snowmobile at the time. I didn't have any sled dogs anymore. We started that race in Island Falls, and we we uh, I stood up in a snowmobile trailer and I said, "Ladies hey, and gentlemen, this race is going to be run under winter conditions." It was 22 below zero at sunrise on that Saturday. The dogs are eager to go. Let's see. Hey. Ah. my cell phone is ringing. Ah. I'll get him later. Just ring her off. Yeah, I'll call him back. All right. Anyway, sorry about that. I forgot to turn it off. I know what it is. I know the phone number. He wants me to put my ad in for the for the September issue of the Northwood Sporting Journal. Got some good listings. Anyway. We had the sled dog race up through there. started at Iron Falls. we looped all up through the east country there on the east branch. Almost up to uh, Sin Pond and Swung South. And it finished up in Patton. It was a good weekend. Lots of people got to see uh, teams of sled dogs. Everybody had a good time. Sunday was a little warmer than Saturday. It was only about eight below. Sled dogs love this. I mean, coyotes live in the wild, and they do very well. Wolves live in the wild, and they do very well and they had a They had a, some legislator several years ago proposed that you can't leave a dog outdoors in in the wintertime if the temperature or chill factor is below certain numbers. you know well, you can't put fee the to peekaboo out there; you'd be frozen solid by morning can't do that. everybody knows that. But Siberian huskies and Alaskan huskies, Malamutes, just love it. I had pipes driven in the ground with a big washer on the top and a ring. The dog could run around in a circle. And they would run in that circle, just trot for exercise. They warmed up and crawl in the doghouse sometimes. The only time they went in the doghouse uh, was when it was raining. They'd rather sleep in the stall. And I'd go out in the morning and start the truck and all of a sudden dogs come jumping up through the snow. Gee, we're going to go run, you know. And uh, I was just going to work but the dog will lay there in a hole in the ground and it'll snow on the dog. The dog is so well insulated the snow does not melt. And the dog will get buried in the snow if you get to 8 or 10 inches. And there just be a mound there and there's a dog under there. Happy as can be. That's where he wants to be. It's It's out of the wind and and, uh, nice and warm. And the dog would have two holes. So if his body heat starts to melt the snow underneath, he starts to get wet, he'll get up, shake himself off, go lay in the other hole. And he probably won't thaw down through that one. Coyotes and wolves do the same thing. They sleep, and they'll curl up underneath a hemlock someplace and sleep. They've always got their, their... ears are moving. You see a sleeping coyote and his ears are moving when he's asleep. He's listening. So it's, uh, it's nature's way. And you can't put peek-a-poos outdoors at night. you got these little lap dogs that people will go around and, and they got a little carrier and they're in their Walmart and they've got this little tiny dog it's their companion dog. They don't want to leave the dog in the vehicle. Well, sometimes it's too hot to leave them in the vehicle. Leave the dog home. But people come up with the craziest ideas. Legislature has now adjourned. A good friend, good friend of mine, Ken York, and I went down the, the Allagash the first time together with the wives and the kids. And... Uh, My boys went down the Allagast at the ages of six and eight. And Tim was about seven or eight years old, Tim York. He'll be 50 this year. I guess my older son is 52 and and will be this year. My younger son will be 50. And uh, we're all going to get together here next weekend, the 12th, and uh, have a celebration of my wife Pat's life going through I'm gonna print out some photos taken back then. I got a picture of my wife Pat sound asleep on top of North Traveler Mountain. Just laid down on the bedrock and dozed off. She climbed the mountain. She was tired. And uh she was handicapped. She had, her handicap grew worse with age and she uh she had difficulty walking and she started using a cane and she started using two canes and then she started using a walker. And when that became too difficult to, to go any long distances, she started using a wheelchair. And then she went to a power wheelchair. And then she went to a bigger, more versatile power wheelchair. And uh, she's been in the power chair for years. she school, work. She's a special education director, secretary of the church secretary of the school board, secretary of two school boards. And uh, at the same time, and uh, you have a meeting with some parents. and say, well, you know, I have a hard time getting here because I'm disabled. And here's this lady in a power wheelchair that cannot walk. She so couldn't take one single step. And uh, this parent who walked in there skipped two meetings in the third meeting, he's either going to show up or the individualized education plan for their child is going to get decided by the school if the parents don't take an interest. So finally the dad walks in, and he's got a disability of some sort. He cuts wood and shovels snow and does all this stuff, but he's got some sort of a disabled disability because he's dissatisfied with something, and... Pretty easy to get on disability in the state of Maine. So we'll say, Well, geez, I don't feel good. I, I can't work. I I wanna be disabled they say, Oh, okay. Here you go. You're good for life. Have a good life. Go fishing and hunting and the state pays you. It happens in Maine. Over in New Hampshire a guy goes into the town office and says, "Yes, you know, he's, I don't I'm out of work and, and I need some assistance. So I've got three kids, and they're growing, they need new boots for the wintertime, and they need jackets, and I need a, by the way, I need a, a load of oil uh, for the house. He's got a brand new tattoo that he paid for, but uh, he can't afford to buy heating oil for the house. So he walks in the town office, and they say, oh, we got a plan for you. You come down Monday morning, and we'll set you to work holding out the culverts and cutting brush along the roads, because winter's coming, and we won't be able to wing the snow back, and and we'll just put you to cut and brush beside the road. Well, I, I don't want to do that. They say, okay, you need to go over to Maine. they got a program for you over in Maine. They don't make people that are well able-bodied and get public assistance. Over in Maine, you can sit home, watch TV, and drink beer. You don't have to work and cut brush beside the road and hoe out the culverts so they don't get plugged up with sand and freeze up and flood the road. <laughs> that's the way it is people people migrate to Maine because of the benefits they had thousands of Somalis evacuated out of Somalia as refugees because they were the wrong kind of Muslim and the other, the other half of the Muslim gang was running in Somalia so I don't know whether it's Sunnis or Shias they're all Muslims like Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, you know, they get to fighting and they hold grudges, and Irish are good at holding grudges, and they they fought for over a hundred years, and, uh, you know, they were Christians, uh, supposedly, the Roman Catholics and Protestants fighting each other in Northern Ireland, and George Mitchell went over there and said, all right, here you go, guys. How long do you want to do this? Well, we're mad at them. Yeah. Well, oh, I don't know. You go a history and find Let's look at the future. You know, how long do you want to hold this war? You want to hold it for another month or two? Or, you want know, six months? A year? Five years? You know, when when do you want to put an end to this? Do you want your children and grandchildren to be killing each other? Well, no. Well, okay. Well, you don't want your grandchildren killing each other. How about your children? You want your children killing each other? They back it up, and finally they come to an agreement. You know, probably we ought to stop doing this. If you look at the big picture, you know, and use fundamental logic, you can use it to negotiate with anybody. The lady in the area here lost her home in a fire, and after the fire, uh, they they fortunately had good insurance, and they built a new home and moved in. They lost everything. I mean, they they walked out the door that morning and a house caught fire. Don't know why. But it burned flat. I mean, it would burn flat. There was nothing left. They lost everything that they had in that house. And they moved into the new house, bought a bunch of new stuff, and got uh, on with their life. All the pictures, records, and recordings, and computers. If you don't have a hard drive off site, and you lose your house, it's all gone. Get yourself a hard drive. I got a two-terabyte hard drive. I'm looking at it right now. And I've got one at camp. So if I lost this house, I sure hope that doesn't happen. You don't want to stand too close to it if it does. <laughs> Enough said about that. But anyway, you, uh, you, know, you ought to have... A hard drive off site a two terabyte hard drive costs nine dollars at at Best Buy down there in Bangor and uh just back up everything you can back up a few computers onto that thing. you know you gotta do it you know periodically, don't just do it on an annual basis doesn't it? at night when you go to bed, plug your thing in and hit backup. up it's backed up. Takes a couple of hours sometimes to back it up. Well, so I was at the housewarming for this couple that had lost their house, and they're in the room with the two most significant environmentalists that I know in Northern Maine. That had come to this housewarming, and the lady that owns the house was a was a well-known liberal. I mean, she's really strong liberal. And uh, but she's a t- she lives lives in town, and, and uh, you know we try to look at, look out for each other. And one of these uh, environmentalists started in on me about some issue, and I said, "Well, you know." And he said, "We're going we're not going to agree on this, you know." I said, "Well, that's okay. I understand. And you got your reasons, and I got my reasons." But I became a volunteer fireman in 19. 19- 57, and I quickly learned that if you're on icy ground at night with a fire hose fire hose got a lot of thrust and you got to have somebody backing you up on the hose so I learned that it doesn't make any difference whether the other person on the hose is a Baptist, a Buddhist Republican or a Democrat you got to put the fire out and if the water's rising and you need somebody to fill sandbags, everybody's going to pitch in to keep the town from flooding or to keep the town office from flooding or some, or some homes. You now, most people have sense enough in Maine not to build on a floodplain, unlike the Mississippi River, uh, places where the town floods on a regular basis. You know, figure out. They build their houses out of stuff that can flood right up the whole first floor and they put all their important stuff on the second floor. And the federal government pays them to they have a disaster declaration and they rebuild all these houses on the floodplain. We pay for it. They make some pretty dumb decisions. Like Obamacare. Our two senators from Maine love Obamacare so much they voted to keep it going forever. He said, nope. We're going to keep Obamacare. And maybe they'll come up with some lame excuse like, well, it does need to be tweaked a little bit or something. But they voted to keep Obamacare. Never forget that. you got a guy that drives truck, makes a good living. And they are... Uh, I'll be turning around my driveway, or pulling in, or something. Anyway, they voted to keep Obamacare. Now, seven years ago, when Obamacare started, we had a pretty good medical care system in our country. And if you didn't want to buy medical insurance, you didn't have to. Billy falls out of the apple tree, you pay the hospital $200 a month until it's paid off, and Billy but has to learn how to climb better. Maybe Billy needs a little adult supervision that he didn't have. But got this problem in our country where everybody is entitled. you got people from Somalia come over here. They're entitled. You know, all these Somalis came into Georgia, thousands of them. And they said, oh, there's lots of black people in Georgia. They'll like us. Well, those Southern Baptists who happened to be black didn't really welcome all these Muslims coming into their villages and towns. So they, uh, and these Muslims started telling these Baptists what they ought to be doing. That doesn't work very well. <laughs> so the Somalis decided, well, let's give it. we're not welcome here. Let's go someplace else. Let's find a state with the very best welfare benefits went down the list and it's all online. You can Google this stuff. They, they were smart people. They, they were the upper crust of, of Somalia. I don't know exactly what the upper crust of Somalia means, but better than the the other guys in Somalia. So they, they did that on the internet and they said, oh, look at this. Maine has got great welfare benefits. All right? And Maine has got great Section 8 housing program going. In Maine, let's see. Let's look at Maine and see where is the town or the city with the highest vacancy rate for rentals? Well, they just closed down Paper Mill, and they just closed down some other businesses down around Lewis and Auburn. So they chartered a fleet of buses, and they came up the road from Georgia to Maine. And they rolled across the green bridge, and they looked around. And they said, you know, the green trees and green grass and everything is wonderful. So, because Somalia is essentially a desert. Most of the country is very arid. They have a hard time creating enough food, you know, to feed the people. So they rolled in, and a bus pulls up in front of the city hall in Lewiston, and they said, here we are. Sign us up. Section 8 housing. They They knew the whole routine. And they, the city took him in, signed him up. Well, after a few weeks of this, bus load after bus load, the mayor says, hey, no more. We're full out. We're tapped out. We can't afford this. So they called the mayor a bigot because he didn't want to fund Somali West, if you will. And they said he's a bigot because he doesn't want to feed and clothe and educate all these Somalis. Well, what difference does it make? If they had a natural disaster, such as the nuclear plant in Russia, okay? They had a nuclear plant that melted down in Russia. And everybody had to leave that whole area. Well, in Russia, there's plenty of room. (laughs) Lots of room in Russia. Russia has... A third the population of our of the United States, and three or four times the size. of so Russia is a sparsely populated country. You have plenty of room for everybody, and they get a low birth rate because they have huge number of abortions in Russia. Russia is a peculiar country. They're, they're they're starting to to establish free enterprise over there. And it's working really well. And red China is starting to establish free enterprise. They're letting people own businesses, manufacture things, supermarkets, things like that, that are privately owned. If they don't rock the boat too much, the government will leave them alone. And they've got some really prosperous people from Russia and from red China. They're Economy. They're starting to realize that free enterprise works, and communism doesn't work. Socialism doesn't work. Look at Venezuela. Venezuela had an election. At least they said they had an election, but they didn't really have an election. They got millions of votes that people that don't exist, and they reelected the the dictator uh, as president. And all of the votes for the people in the parliament are his party and pick people. So it's like the old Politburo in Russia, the Soviet Union, back when it was in existence. It fell apart because it can't, it cannot survive. I don't. You got vast natural resources in Russia. But the system can't survive unless you reward excellence. The guy that works harder than than the other guy or lady should get paid more. If he, if he produces more, either through his intellectual ability, his planning ability, or his simple reliability and attention to detail manufacturing. If he he is a very efficient guy. He should get paid more than the guy that just wants to hang out in a brake shack and doesn't have any initiative. They shouldn't be paid the same amount of money. My father worked in a wire mill, uh, and they had a, a machine that would take wire, and wire is made on, uh, they wind it up on on big spools. And they they start out with a rod, maybe a half, three-quarters of an inch diameter, and they pass it through a die and squeeze it down. They keep pulling it through smaller and smaller dies until they get down to the diameter they want. The best steel for making wire comes from Sweden because there's no rocks and pits in it. You've got iron ore that's smelted down into cast iron, and then they they make it into steel. They have a, a few alloys. And then they... But the Swedes use wood to refine their steel. Wood fires. There's no sulfur in the wood. Sulfur weakens steel. So the uh, steel wire is, is the best for well, Swedish steel is the best for making fine diameter wire, like music wire and uh, small springs. And my father, of course, was Swedish extraction, the whole family is, where last name is Ek, E-K. And in Sweden, uh, it means oak, kind of tree, you know, tall and rugged, strong. That's us. So, in that wire mill, they made high quality welding rods for stick welding. And they, along with a whole bunch of other wire products, but the uh, welding rods are straight. So they have to take the wire that comes off a a, cool, a coil, pass it through a machine, it's called a straight and cut machine. And they'd put so many pounds of straight and cut into a box, 10 pounds, 12 pounds, and then change the box, make another one. So this somebody would tend that machine. Well, I called the guy in on Saturday and said that uh, you know we really got this rush order. It was summertime, and people wanted to be at home with their family. And this guy said he would come in and work. So he came in and worked this Saturday. Well, he got his machine running. And he knew it was going to be 15 minutes before the next before the next uh, box had to be added and take the first box off. So he started up the next machine over. He found that he could keep three of these machines running at the same time. And he's being paid on a piecework basis by the number of boxes of straight and cut wire that he produced. So on this particular Saturday, he produced a record number of boxes of straight and cut wire. and He got a big paycheck this was This was a good thing, you know, and the company had a union, and the union was milking the job, and they said okay and we they'd run the machine slowly, the machine had a variable speed, so they they were getting some incentive beyond their basic base pay for this this job, and this straight and cut job was a was a good job. People liked the job. This guy, nobody wanted the job that day. He came in and made a huge amount of money for the day. Boy, the union got on him. You're not supposed to do that. He said, where does it say that in the contract? You know, <laughs> where does it say you can't do that? Thinking outside the box. People accuse me of thinking outside the box. And and I do. I look for opportunities. In, in this business, I'm in the real estate business. You need a... You look for opportunities because there's, I don't know how many agents, and are brokers and brokers there are in the state of Maine, but there's a pile of them. There's one one agency in Bangalore that's got 150 agents. We've got about 85 in our agency, and there's a whole bunch of smaller ones, and then you got the mom and pop, mom, pop, and, and maybe the daughter or somebody working in, in the agency. And they've all got, they're all competing against each other for the same business. I had a couple come in last week from Colorado. They landed here on Wednesday and on Thursday. we went out and looked at the property that they'd put on the contract, subject only to a sidewalk. Well, it's 50 acres. Now, a 40-acre lot, if it's square, has a boundary that's exactly one mile, 1,320 feet on the side. It's 40 acres. All this stuff comes out even if you look at it. This is a 50-acre lot, so it's, its perimeter is more than a mile. And a 40-acre lot could be more than a mile if it's all irregular and zigzags all over the place. Well, we've got this couple killed up from Colorado, flew in here on Wednesday, and on Thursday we went out to do a sight walk and they just fell in love. With it. Oh, this is wonderful. This is gorgeous. Better than we imagined. Well, that's what I do. I sell stuff that's better than people imagine. This is a 40-acre lot in Exeter, and uh, and this lot is, you know, they're going to build on. This is going to be their home. It's surrounded by fields and farms, and the south boundary is a stream, French stream, owned by the French family years ago. And there used to be a dam there. There was a pond. Well, the pond is gone now. 1938, hurricane came. And they used to grind corn and roll oats every spring by with water power. So they'd harvest the oats and the corn in the fall, store it through the winter, and then they'd make cracked corn or cornmeal. And then they would they'd have uh, rolled oats to make oatmeal, or sometimes just for animal feed. Well, they'd run this thing with water power in the spring when the, when the stream was up, and then they'd, for three or four, six weeks, whenever they had the water, and uh, that was the mill. They'd shut it down for a year because not enough water to, to power the mill. But the pond was still there, so you could go fishing, swim in. Well, 1938 Great New England hurricane came up through and flooded the dam, washed it out on the end, and the dam failed, and no more pond. Just the stream. But you can canoe the stream and you can, with a canoe or a kayak, and fish the stream. It's pretty. They just loved it. Going to close on it Monday. That's a quick trailer route. We can make that happen. Cash deal. Banks are getting more and more stringent on, on lending. They don't want to lend of 3% loans, and 4% loans right now, because they know the interest rate's going to take off and, and go high. It's coming. Everybody, everybody that understands economics understands that we're going to be right back in the same situation we had when Jimmy Carter was president. We had home interest rates for 18% a year. 18% on a home mortgage. Buy a $100,000 house? You pay eighteen thousand dollars in interest on that house. Eighteen thousand dollars divided by twelve months is fifteen hundred dollars a month. Interest on a hundred thousand dollar house. Well, people couldn't afford that, so the housing market tanked. But the banks loved it, and the people who had investments loved it because they were getting twelve percent interest rate on their savings account. That was a good thing. So if you had $100,000, at the end of the year, you'd have $12,000 in interest, and you go out and buy a boat or something. But when you restrict something, it becomes more valuable. When you create too much of it, nobody wants it. I mean, if they had free corn on the cob beside the road that a farmer had grown, What would be worth? I mean, how much corn can you eat? The value of the corn would be virtually zero. In 1917, you could buy a cow with a $20 gold piece. Today, you can buy a cow with that same $20 gold piece. With a $20 bill, we'll buy four pounds of good hamburger. I'm talking about 90% lean Angus grass-fed beef from from the environmentalist farm down there in the coast, okay. Better than better than the old cow that has produced milk all her life and she's getting less productive so they they take old bossy to the slaughterhouse and make old bossy into into Hamburg. And that that sells for two ninety nine a pound. But good Hamburg, ninety percent lean, Angus grass-fed beef is $5 a pound. So you get four pounds of hamburger for your $20 bill. But a $20 gold piece will still buy you a cow. So what's changed? Take that $20 gold piece. It's worth $1,300. You can buy a a decent cow with $1,300 today. But what's happened is the real value of The cow has not changed over time. The real value of gold has not changed over time. When Christ walked the earth, you could buy 400 loaves of the finest bread with one ounce of gold. Today, you go into Hannaford's and you can buy 400 loaves of the finest bread. I'm talking about these artisan loaves of bread, you know. 400 loaves with $1,270 dollars divide that by 400, it's a little over three bucks a loaf. And you can get some really nice bread for three bucks a loaf in Hannaford's. Or Shaw's, or whatever. So, if you study economics, and I did that in college, I liked economics. And I saw how the world worked, having been in places that had revolutions, and bloodshed, and 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 watch what happens when communists take over. I was in Chile the first time Allende tried to take over. I was in Panama. I was in the Dominican Revolution, which was a real zoo. (laughs) For four days, I had the only helicopter in the Dominican Republic, and the whole nation, the only helicopter. Boy, was I popular, almost as popular as the northern mainland man, so I'll tell you. So, I've written some of this stuff down, and I've got it in a file on my computer called Book. And my kids will probably wind up publishing some of these chapters. But uh, there's a lot of stories in there, and I've got pictures. I've got pictures of the embassy in Santa Domingo taken from the courtyard in the middle of the revolution. And the president of the Dominican Republic was going to make a getaway, and he had a ship all ready to go. And they blew up the ship, sunk it at the pier, and the ship was on fire the first time when I went in there. I said, Well, that's, you're going to have to go to Plan B. <laughs> the ship wasn't going anywhere. It uh, it was a zoo for two or three weeks. In the first four days, I say I had the only helicopter in the country. and Six weeks, the revolution was over. And communists had had lots and lots of AK-47s and lots and lots of ammunition, but no radios. They couldn't communicate. So what'd they do? I told you I went to this liberal teacher's uh, housewarming, and I pointed out that, you know, when the communists revolt, communist is nothing more than a socialist in a hurry. That's it. And progressives and socialists, you know, they, they want to run everything. They think they're better than everybody else. So a communist is a socialist in a hurry. You know that kind of irritates them when you say that, but it's true. And what happens, the whole thing goes down, and this lady was a teacher. It's her home, her housewarming. So she was, she was had a job as a teacher, and uh, I said, you know, when the when the communists come in, the first thing they do is kill all the teachers. You realize that, right? No, they didn't. Know. Oh yes, that's true. They, they they just hang them all. Or shoot them. Cheaper to hang them. So they hang them, and uh, and then they they kill all the police officers. They say, I was. Find all the local, local police officers, and they block the way out of town, so the chief of police can't beat feet out of town, and they kill him. And then they start with the shopkeepers, the people that own businesses. They don't want that. They want the government to control it. They don't want any businessmen, so they kill all the shopkeepers in town. And then they kill the public officials, the local town council, planning board, zoning board, sewer commission. You know, everybody, that holds public office, they kill them all. That's what they do. They do it everywhere, every time, without exception. They always do this. And when you get progressives in an organization like the Maine State Legislature, that's the direction they want to go. Now, there's no state legislature that's going to say they want to kill all the teachers. Okay, They wouldn't get reelected. But he wants to be a progressive, and he wants to institute tyrannical acts like Common Core. That's the direction it's going. If you let him get away with it, there will be no more creativity. There will be no more individualized effort. You're not going to get people like my brother-in-law who helped to design the fuel measuring system in the Apollo space capsule with a slide rule. If I brought a slide, I, I substituted in math in the, in the school around here briefly. The guy wasn't out very long, but I came in with a slide rule and I showed him this is how we used to do calculations. Well, how does it keep track of the decimal point in your head you had to understand the problem you were working with. These kids are given problems in algebra and they solve for the answer. That's fine. But nowhere in life is anybody going to put a problem down on a piece of paper and say, solve this problem. Maybe in a job interview, maybe. But in no occupation is somebody going to give you a list of problems to solve and you solve these problems. You have to invent the problem. And I substituted for six weeks in a sixth grade class for a teacher that was out for surgery. And the the thing that terrifies middle school and high school students the most is word problems. They want to they want to look at a formula and solve for the answer. Somebody's written down for you. No, life isn't like that. Nobody's going to give you a problem to solve. You have to solve your own problem. So I said, okay, word problems. Oh, Shudder goes through the class, oh God, word problems. They can't do it because you haven't been taught how to do it and the system doesn't want them to be able to think creatively. It's it's a flaw in the system. I'm on a school board. I'm on two school boards. And they don't want students to be able to think creatively. So I said, okay, you all got notebooks. In the back of the notebook, someplace inside the cover, you're never gonna throw it away and write down. The word per means divided by. Per means divided by. Miles per gallon, miles divided by gallons. Feet per second is speed divided by seconds, or the velocity of a bullet, for example. Or the speed of an automobile. Thirty miles an hour is forty four feet per second, roughly. If so you're going sixty miles an hour, you're going eighty eight feet per second. Going ninety nine miles an hour, or hundred miles an hour, you know, you're going that many feet per second. You look down for a couple of seconds to text on your telephone, you've gone 250 or 280 feet down the road, even though there's a moose stepped out in the road, and you were looking at your telephone instead of the moose. Don't do that. I fiddle with my GPS from time to time going down the road, but, you know, if I'm going to do something that requires my undivided attention, you stop the automobile. You've got a law that says you have to do that. Okay. Let's see how close I am to ten o'clock here. Ten oh two. Oh my word. Okay. Well, this has been the Northern Maine landman show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscious of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on Talkshoe Radio Network, worldwide in all twenty four time zones. More than twenty-four, because some of them are on a half-hour time zone, in places like Newfoundland and Iraq. Isn't is something to ponder sometime? Newfoundland and Iraq, half hour off. Okay. Be safe. Enjoy the summertime in Maine. No text going down the road. It's not only illegal; it's dangerous. Be safe. God bless.